You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Caroline Hyde in New York. In for Emily Chang and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Xi Jinping's power grab is over in Beijing, but it led to a historic rout in tech stocks globally. Equities had their worst day in Hong Kong, for example, since 2008's financial crisis. How will tech navigate this new era? Plus, a huge earnings week. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, to name but a few, will break down what to expect. And after Washington's move to reclassify gig workers, what happens to Uber, to GoPuff, of course, the Silicon Valley, we dive into the $15 billion delivery market that's on the brink. We'll get into all of those stories in a moment. But first, let's get you up to speed with the relationship going forward between U.S., China, what it means for some of those companies that try to cross that Rubicon. Let's talk about it all now on the impact of the changes in China. And particularly, let's look at the chip sector and with one Debbie Wu, Bloomberg's Debbie Wu, who's usually based in Taipei. We are so thankful that she's right now in the United States. And your expertise here, Debbie, at this moment with companies such as TSMC trying to navigate this new world order of the relationship that is disintegrating between China and the United States. States and, and an international investor that worries what on earth this new consolidation of power means for companies trying to work their way around. Just talk us, for example, through your breaking news story you had over the weekend of what TSMC is trying to do. So uh, uh, we have seen that uh, this new set of uh, U.S. export control rules have impact not just on American firms, but also uh, foreign companies that uh, have business relationship with uh, China. So what we uh, reported over the weekend is that uh, TSMC has stopped production for this Chinese AI chip startup, Biren, because uh, based on uh, public domain information, that Biren's products actually outperform uh, NVIDIA's A100 chips, which is now 
help Ben for the Chinese market. So it's really interesting to see that uh, uh, foreign companies now uh, also have to follow the uh, uh, U.S. rules like they did back uh, a couple of years ago when the uh, U.S. Uh, blacklisted Huawei. So a lot of companies uh, cut off their uh, business ties uh, with uh, uh, Huawei. And then uh, what's happening now is also uh, uh, companies are uh, sort of tightening uh, China's access to their uh, technologies or uh, their products. And we have seen uh, the Dutch equipment supplier ASML also uh, told its uh, U.S.-based staff to uh, uh, hold their services to uh, Chinese customers due to uh, this uh, new U.S. regulations restricting um, U.S. persons from uh, helping with uh, China's chip industry. Given the news that upended the market, that this consolidation of power in China, this focus on well, perhaps movement away from such growth tech names, the fact that we saw Alibaba fall so much. But what does that mean for the chip sector, do you think, Debbie, at the moment? So uh, following the uh, uh, U.S. announcement of this new set of rules, uh, chip stocks have uh, plummeted, and we have seen uh, the uh, Philadelphia Stock Exchange Semiconductor Index fallen uh, more than uh, 40% this year, partly due to of the uh, new curves and partly due to the uh, uh, growing headwinds in the uh, chip sector. So, I mean, it is going to be uh, quite challenging for the uh, uh, chip companies to uh, navigate this uh, uh, growing uh, uh, weakening demand amid high inflation. Uh, high inflation environment and also uh, uh, potential recessions uh, and also given the restrictions for their business in China, I think it's going to uh, be quite challenging. So we'll hear more about this uh, with uh, Texas Instruments and Intel giving their uh, earnings and also a forecast uh, later this week. And therefore going forward, are people starting to say to you these negative headwinds, whether it be a relationship and, and more difficult business being done with China, whether it's the curbs that the US put in, whether or not it's just a slowing fundamental story that's happening in terms of where we are in the chip cycle. Are people starting to say that this is priced in in some way or not yet? Uh, I think it's uh, really uh, sort of like a uh, uh, convergence of uh, these uh, different sec uh, these elements. So it's hard to say that uh, okay, so the chip whether the chips company chips companies are uh, taking a bigger hit from uh, certain things, but it's more like uh, these uh, uh, different elements are uh, putting a uh, growing pressure on the uh, earnings and then sales of uh, uh, chip companies around the world. Yeah, we keep a close eye on this week, of course, of Texas Instruments and Intel. Debbie Wu, we thank you for your expertise. There. Meanwhile, turning to some of the changes and the look ahead to one key player, Apple's got its earnings, but it has some interesting news. And who helped break that was one Mark Gurman. Mark, talk to us about, well, the inflation that maybe Apple is serving us up at the moment. Yeah, so a few Apple services, actually their main ones, all got price hikes this morning. So Apple TV Plus that we talk about often, Apple Music, and Apple One subscription bundles where TV Plus and Apple Music are obviously at the forefront of their streaming packages, right? So Apple Music is moving from $10 per month in the US to $11 per month, so a 10% price increase. Apple TV Plus moving from $5 a month to $7 a month. And the Apple One bundles, those are rising between $2 and $3, uh, depending on what packages you get. So in the mid-teens, uh, up to $33 for that highest-end package where yeah. you get gaming and news and whatnot. Uh, Apple saying this has to do with higher costs for licensing related to music. And on the TV Plus front, when Apple TV Plus launched in 2019, the company correctly says that there were 
basically no shows or very few shows at the get-go. Now TV Plus has dozens of shows. Still no back catalog, but certainly you're getting more bang for your buck now than you did before, yeah. uh, which means they're now raising those prices. And we saw the impact on, say, the stock of Spotify, where many now preempting they might pass on some of their prices to the consumer as well. Talk to us about more what we expect from Apple's numbers as well. Out later this week, of course, most valuable company. It's important to us. Yeah, so analysts sticking to services believe that Apple is going to come in almost to $20 billion, right? Wouldn't be an all-time record, right, but would be uh, fairly significant for a fourth quarter. That's for services specifically. In terms of overall, we're talking about between the mid-80 billions to low-90 billions. Those are the estimates I've seen between about 5 and 8% year-over-year growth. Now, that growth is not going to be as significant as the year-over-year growth you saw uh, a year ago in the fourth quarter, 2021. That was about 20 to 25 percent year-over-year growth. Obviously, that was COVID-induced, more iPad and Mac purchases. But any growth, given the current conditions of the economy, uh, is a pretty good thing for Apple at this mm -hmm. point. One major thing you can probably attribute to that, however, is the iPhone 14 Pro and Pro Max line that you're showing right now uh, on TV. Those phones have done especially well with some of the new features, like the better camera, satellite features, the dynamic island in the screen. People have been buying those up, and Apple got an extra week of sales for that device yeah. because they released it one week earlier than they historically do for new iPhones. So that's where you're going to see the growth from this quarter. Another seasonality issue in these earnings. We thank you, Mark Gurman. Let's talk about some of the dry powder that Andreessen Horowitz has a lot of. And it's putting it to work, betting on a key platform that's meant to perhaps allow founders in particular to access private markets, more diversification. The Coterie, which lets users invest in funds that include companies like SpaceX or Stripe, just landed $40 million in funding round, led by A16Z. Here to discuss it is the Coterie CEO and co-founder, Ethan Agarwal. All right, we, we want to a little bit, first and foremost, remind people of your story, sure. why the Coterie was born, and it was through frustrations that you found as a founder, right? Yeah, so I was the founder of a company called Aptive before this. Uh, we were growing, we did about 100 million of revenue, and I turned off my salary and I went to apply for a mortgage. And the guy says to me, we can't give you a mortgage, you don't have a salary. And you know, I realized it's kind of silly because uh, most of the people that I know make a lot more money from their assets or their equity than they do from their salary, probably a lot of the people that watch your show. And so there's clearly a disconnect that's emerged between the way that the legacy financial guys think about risk and think about asset allocation and the way that me and everyone that I know thinks about it. Because most of us make most of our money from carry or equity than we do from salary. And so we realize there's an opportunity to build financial products targeted towards people who make more money from assets than they do from their salary. So you're looking at an individual in a different way at their own credit risk, but then you're looking at that individual and being like, I know, you need diversification in your life as well. Well, if you think about a founder, most of their wealth is concentrated in one specific highly illiquid asset. Mm. And anybody will tell you that's not a great way to manage your risk. Uh, so what we do is we provide access to invest in some of the best fund managers in the world, like Andreessen Horowitz, uh, like Initialized. And and it allows the founder to diversify their risk away from just their own company. We also provide liquidity. We also provide estate planning. We're looking at all the different areas that founders need help in and where we feel like the banks have 
dropped the ball, and we're building products designed to help founders alleviate some of that mental pain that they have to experience when they try to deal with a legacy institution. Dare I say, at this moment where you're a f one is a founder, do they want to be doubling down in still private companies, given valuations are indeed under pressure? Yeah, so um, it's key that their portfolio, well, in my opinion, is that their portfolio is not just going to be privates, right? They're going to have a 401k, they're going to have publics, they're going to have probably some crypto. Our pitch is not that we're trying to provide advice as to how you construct your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Our pitch is that if you want access to some of the best privates or some of the best managers, this is the place to get it. And you couldn't really invest in Andreessen Horowitz or some of these other funds, managers that we have prior to the Coterie coming around. And so we're there as an access play as opposed to an advice play. How deep does this sort of democratization go? Because you're focusing on a very specific sphere of investor, today right? Today we are, yeah. Today we target people with one to 50 million of assets. And what about, therefore, when you're looking at, well, ARK is getting into the space of wanting to make venture investing more accessible to those who only have $500, who aren't an accredited investor. Are you looking at democratization to that level, or are you no. still very specific? No, we're focused on a specific uh, band, but more importantly, we're focused on a specific type of person. Mm. So, um, honestly, the band is less important. It's more about how you make your money and what your ambitions are for the future. I I think if you can get access through, I think ARC's partnership was with Titan, I think if you can get access to them, that's excellent. But we're looking more at someone who has a comprehensive set of needs. They want diversification, they need liquidity because of all their assets are tied up in an illiquid asset, they need tax planning because they're sitting on an asset that has potentially a thousand X appreciation and they haven't done any of their estate planning. Those are the kinds of needs that we solve as opposed to someone who's looking to you know, dip their toe into venture for the first time. Huge check to be written for a total addressable market that is what? Massive. Is it? Yeah, so talk to how, how big is that? Because I'm thinking, well, this is a, a pretty unique, relatively uh, privileged part of society. We uh, in, the, in America, there's 25 million millionaires. About 3 million of them are under the age of 45. And we go after people 25 to 45, 1 to 50 million of assets. And so the N of people, we're talking about is a couple million people in the United States. Okay. But the most important thing is that the lifetime value of these people is extraordinarily high, right? So we're not building Bank of America. We're never going to have 150 million customers. That's not the game we're playing. We're going after a very specific demo and offering them very specific solutions that are going to make their lives easier. And if we're right, and if we do a good job, they're going to stick with us for decades. We're trying to build decades-long relationships with our customers which will generate hopefully lots of lifetime value for them and for us. Okay, so at what point do you not, how do you stop people checking out and having the family office or starting to move on to a different level of private wealth manager? That I, I think it really depends on what they need. So if they like a family office, which provides a lot of things that we don't, mm. by all means, go use a family office. We're looking for people who are struggling with the solutions that are currently available to them relative to what they want. And so if you're looking for access, if you're someone who likes to do your own investing or likes to think about solutions yourself, as opposed to someone who likes to give it to a family office and say, you know, I want someone else to manage it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just not the space that we're in. So if you choose to graduate there, by all means, go ahead. This, of course, is a long-term bet, and you are building a business for decades, not a year. But how has the fundraising process been, or how has your current outlook had to just 
cool down a little bit as the market cools down? Yeah, look, I, first of all, this is my second time around, and it's a lot easier to start a company and raise money the second time around. I also have two phenomenal co-founders, both of whom this is their second and third time around. So I think what, what we'd say is, um, the, the market is still open. There's still dry powder to be allocated. The best funds are still investing. You just have to make sure that your story and your substance is tight. And what we found is, you know, some of the stories that were perhaps a little bit lighter that were getting funded 12 months ago maybe are not getting funded today, but the ones that still have a lot of gravitas behind them are going to get funded, and in a way, they're actually more attractive because that powder needs to get invested somewhere. And you know, they can't be sitting on the sidelines, so they need to allocate that powder into really good companies. And I think you've seen, you know, today and even in the last couple of weeks, the market's picking up and a lot of companies are raising reasonably large rounds. Ethan, great to have some time with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on, of course, The Coterie, the CEO and co-founder, Ethan Agarwal. Meanwhile, coming up, well, what is the bar for tech earnings this week? How low has it gone, more to the point? Brad Erickson of RBC is up next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Look, this week is going to be busy. Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Twitter. Huge week for tech earnings. Let's bring in RBC Capital Markets Internet Equity Analyst Brad Erickson. Brad, wow. I mean, the bellwether almost could have been Snap. How much are you reading the concerns about the advertising spend from Snap as a read across to some of the key players like a Meta, for example? Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, that's, that's always the tough part. Snap leads us off, right, in earnings season. And... I think the last few quarters, it's safe to say they are not a bellwether. Mm. Um, so we're, I, and frankly, when you think about the stocks and how they traded on Friday, right? So I think Snap closed down 28% for the day. Clearly, if you look at stocks like Alphabet, like Meta, and the direction that those traded, I think I think investors are are not inferring Snap as that sort of canary in the coal mine uh, at this point. So okay, so let's dig in on Meta, for example. Are you yeah. anticipating? Decent advertising commitment, decent marketing spend still going through their platforms. Are you worrying about what the Apple algorithm has done to them again? Um, yeah, so a couple puts and takes, and we just put out a report on this where we had talked to 
uh, almost 25 uh, small and medium-sized business ad agencies in the last few weeks. What we sort of heard was that you know, number one, in terms of overall spend, things actually got a little bit better through the quarter. I think between things like lower fuel prices and maybe some consumer packaged goods becoming more available um, from an inventory perspective and then lower shipping and freight costs, I think actually that may have actually freed up a little bit of budget on the advertiser mm. front. So overall, we actually heard things directionally got a little bit better. Um, on the algorithm front, uh, also, on the positive side for Meta, we heard sort of what we call green shoots of, of positive development around the targeting algorithm and campaign performance. We were very careful to say, though, that we do think it's very early. Um, we don't see this necessarily impacting revenue, uh, certainly not in Q3, and it, it probably is minimal in Q4. But it was encouraging when you think about Meta trying to restore some of that signal they lost from Apple. Yeah. We do think that sets up as a potential tailwind in 23. Okay, that nicely drives us on to the Apple conversation because interesting that they're raising prices in services. We're expecting a, a strong set of data coming from the services part of the business. Where are you looking for Apple's growth trajectory? So I hate to be a big disappointment, but I actually don't cover Apple, so I can't speak to that. Ah, apologies. We're, <laughs> we're, we, what, what do you make, though, therefore, of we the read across to, there for? What, what about some of the other social media? Because Apple is having such a knock-on effect, not just on Snap, not just on Meta, but other players yeah. within the field. Let's talk a little bit more about the strength of social media in general. And I do believe that you cover Twitter. Are we expecting anything particularly from their earnings there in terms of advertising commitment, or is this just a more look ahead to what happens if the business is yeah, so I think broadly for the social media companies, and, and we've heard this consistently in our advertising channel work over the last year, the Apple signal, I hate to sound so absolute, but the Apple signal is never coming back. This is never going to change. Now, the way when we talk about the potential to restore signal, we're not saying doing it in the old fashioned way, the way they used to do it. They're trying new first and third party alternatives. And so I think whether it's Pinterest or um, or any of the other social media, certainly YouTube, we lump into there as well. And obviously you have to, have to talk about TikTok these days. I think all of those companies are looking for any sort mm -hmm. of way, be it a first party solution, third party, to try and restore that signal. And we do expect it to get marginally better over time. I think the issue is, is it's just going really slow here. And yeah. we're still, you know, we're now through that period lapping when Apple started, yeah. it's still not showing that much improvement. What about, I mean, you have Amazon at an outperform, I believe, Brad. Mm -hmm. What about their advertising impact? Is that becoming yeah. any sort of res area of strength? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, when you think about just going back to the Apple thing, the, 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 the segment of the economy that that really affected was small and medium-sized uh, businesses and e-commerce vendors. And so when you figure those guys frequently also sell on Amazon, that's been a huge source of strength. And we've actually talked to some of those aggregators, and there's a lot of profit margin that those companies do make. They're actually nicely profitable businesses, surprisingly profitable. And so they do have margin to be able to spend on advertising on Amazon. And we think Amazon is actually sort of working the, the site to be able to, to uh, not require, but, but in some ways sort of force a lot of those uh, third-party vendors to advertise more in to become discoverable on the site. So yeah, huge driver, very positive for Amazon since those Apple changes hit. Amazon outperform, Meta outperform, Alphabet outperform. We look ahead to how those earnings shape up. Internet equity analyst, RBC Capital Markets, Brad Erickson.
Chinese President Xi Jinping has unveiled the country's new leadership lineup in a twice-a-decade reshuffle. The powerful seven-member Politburo Standing Committee is led by Xi. The others include Shanghai Chief Li Xiang, former anti-graft czar Zhao Liji, former Party Secretariat Chief Wang Huning, Beijing Party Secretary Tsai Ji, Xi's Chief of Staff Ding Xuexiang, and Guangdong Leader Li Xi. This final lineup has been beyond many analysts' most extreme predictions as it marks a clear break from the collective leadership model that's underpinned China's rise. It's also a historic moment because it breaks so many norms, from term limits to early retirement to age norms to female representation as well as resume prerequisites. For example, Shanghai Chief Li Xiang, who is likely to become China's next premier, does not have national governance experience. And for the first time in a quarter century, China won't have a woman sitting on its current 24-member Politburo, marking a major step back in gender representation. What these powerful men have in common is that they've shown the utmost loyalty to Xi and his signature policies. Critics worry, though, that the move could present new risks from lack of opposing voices. This is Bloomberg Technology. That was a broad look at the changes in China. Now, of course, the global ramifications went far and wide. Some of the Chinese technology giants listed not only in Hong Kong, but in New York, absolutely tanked. That's a technical term on Monday after President Xi Jinping's power grab, as it's being deemed. The market meltdown followed a reshuffle in China's ruling communist parties, we heard, but it means a consolidation of control by Xi. Bloomberg, Ed Ludlow, right here to talk about what were the moves that mattered to you most, Ed? Right. Well, we talked about the size and scope, right? The Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index, biggest drop on record, closes at the lowest level since 2013. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, dropping by the most since 2008, closes at lowest level since 2008. But really the stat that stood out to me was this was the most severe biggest drop in reaction to a Communist Party Congress going back to 1994 when the index was first founded, right, first conceived. And it gives you a sense of the angst and concern that investors have, particularly about the technology sector, under what a third-term Xi presidency looks like, under what this administration with new faces lacking economic experience, if not competence, looks like for the technology sector. There's another angle to this, too. Come with me into my Bloomberg terminal. Look at this chart which is the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index at its lowest level relative to the S&P 500 since 2001. There's a concern here about the value of the tech sector in China. And what jumps out at me as well is the data around foreign investors selling out of China assets on Monday. Around $2.5 billion of mainland shares via the trading links with Hong Kong was sold Monday. That's another record going back to when they first started tracking the data in 2016. Foreign investors concerned. This also ties together with what we saw from Tesla cutting prices in China and now raising questions about the demand in that country. But they also announced that they would raise manufacturing. And reading across the analyst reaction, the expert reaction to this move by Xi Jinping, one of the, the pretty firm reactions is that we will not see an end to COVID zero and some mm. of the restrictions in that economy. That's a concern for Tesla because most recently, 50% of output is coming from its plant in Shanghai. How will they navigate that? And what does it mean for the strength of consumer in an economy that's showing signs of cracking? Shorter term concerns, longer term concerns. Ed Ludlow, he does it all for us. We thank you. Meanwhile, let's talk about 
well, what it means to be navigating what are becoming less and less global stories in what are meant to still be global markets. Tensions Global Advisors, Albright Stonebridge Group Principal, Amy Selico is with us. Amy, your perspective, the biggest risk at the moment, we heard a, a litany sort of laid out by Ed there, but is it short-term in nature? Is it like a COVID shutdown or is it more broad and long-term in nature now under Xi Jinping's next decade? Well, I really appreciated hearing your colleagues talking about the meeting in those terms, how the markets have reacted. And I think what it underscores is there's still a lot of uncertainty coming out of this week-long meeting. While a political leadership has been formed, and as your colleagues referenced, Xi Jinping really did stack the deck in ways that analysts, myself included, did not foresee. We didn't think that he would take out so many capable leaders who were not at retirement age, particularly those with national experience overseeing the economy. He did. Um, but his new economic leadership is not formed yet. We have to wait until next spring for that. And so for foreign investors, for those of us who want to continue to see growth in the China market of our operations, we're just not sure what direction the Chinese government is going to be pushing beyond very broad uh, broad stroke pronouncements at the Party Congress, that development remains important. Not a focus on reform, but a focus on growth. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, if you've got the risk tolerance for it, you know, Kalanovich over at JP Morgan, key strategist there, saying this is a buying opportunity in Chinese-related tech stocks. Mm. But from your perspective, is the narrative becoming less global? Are we likely to see yet further tensions, for example, affecting a chip sector where U.S. and China relations are dovetailing lower? Undoubtedly, the long-term prospects are for more risk. Uh, unfortunately, but I think that's pretty uh, pretty much true. For one thing, we heard that from the Chinese government. A real focus over the past week was on the external environment and it being very threatening and dangerous to China. Not that the Chinese government was shoring up to do anything aggressive in response, but it was notable that Xi Jinping, other top leaders, focus very much on security issues and an unfriendly environment that China has to struggle against. And so what that means for us, I think, is that we're looking at prolonged tensions in U.S.-China relations, prolonged uh, self-reliance pursuits within China, and here in Washington, of course, prolonged focus on China as a strategic competitor of the United States. And so those technology controls that you were talking about absolutely are going to continue to grow. Talking of competition, what's been interesting was today rumors, and I will call them rumors, swirled. If at 1.30 p.m. New York time, in tandem, both Meta and Snap's share prices suddenly took a leg lower. Many were talking about ongoing narrative of whether TikTok, for example, will be able to carry on in its current form here in the United States. How much do you see that becoming a continued political football between China and the U.S. and whether or not it does remain having a presence here, for example? I think it is going to be a challenge because data and particularly control of personal information is a rising concern in Washington about China's access to American citizens' data and in China. 
about U.S. companies having having access to Chinese citizens' data. It's considered a national security issue, and so I do think that is going to continue to grow as a problem. Of course, today we saw that there were two indictments uh, against Chinese um, uh, Chinese spies who were seeking to influence the investigation, the Department of Justice investigation against Huawei. And so again, technology-focused issues are at the fore of U.S.-China competition. That is going to make it a challenging environment for companies in the United States and in China to continue to be interdependent. And then we have just a, a show of how the share price did erode somewhat on Snap on the day, just at about 1.30. I'm interested, Amy, on your perspective. We've been talking about how this is impacting the investors, of course, as many of viewers are. Talk to us about a CEO of a business that has wanted to peg themselves to the growth story that is China, that is now trying to understand whether that's something that they really stick to. Well, I think coming out of the Party Congress, there are probably CEOs and, and many boards that are saying, what did we see here? We saw a continuation of a real focus on national security. We saw some some norm-busting behaviors um, of early retirements of some very capable economic uh, officials and some promotions of officials that don't necessarily have a strong national economic background. And so those are challenges. Uh, when foreign CEOs are thinking about the direction in which Chinese policymakers are going to take China's economic development and the role of foreign investment in the market. We just saw uh, Q3 numbers drop on Monday. They were delayed. They were supposed to be released out of China last week. It was delayed until after the Party Congress. And while there was some suggestion that the numbers were a little bit better than we predicted, certainly the export-led growth is down, and it's going to continue to be down. And so within China, I think there's going to be a focus on consumption-led growth. So for the clients I serve and other uh, global companies who are focused on the China consumption story, it will remain important. But it does depend on the sector in which you operate because there is continued concerns in Beijing over the kinds of activities foreign investors can can in a, it, it can do in the China market if there's an overlay of national security concern. That was a key theme coming out of the Party Congress, even though it was not tied to foreign investment. That's what CEOs are looking at. Amy Selko, principal over at Denton's Global Advisor of Albright Stonebridge Group, we thank you so much for keeping us on top of it all. Meanwhile, coming up, well, the government's crypto crackdown here in the US, is it scaring away potential investors or is it the complete opposite, transparency? We'll discuss that in our crypto report. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice 
or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Time now for our crypto report. And it seems like the recent attention on crypto by the SEC and other watchdogs, well, actually proving to be pretty good for the industry. Let's bring in our crypto contributor, Shanali Basak, for more on this. And in that, you hear it from many a player, maybe a CEO, an executive saying, we bring on regulation. We want to therefore be deemed sort of more legitimate. But are investors seeing it that way? I think you have to break down what kind of investors. First of all, 60% of those who are surveyed by Bloomberg, this is more than 560 investors, said yes. And interestingly enough, if you look at the type of investors, retail investors were saying so at a greater rate than mm. professional investors. And when you look at the crypto industry at large, you are seeing a lot of divergence still in the types of investors that are more likely to buy crypto over the next 12 months off of the back of that. For example, you're seeing more sell-side traders say yes, as opposed to those high-level asset allocators and executives saying yes. So you do have divergence within <laughs> the type of investor, but generally Whether here, it's on their own personal book or whether it's for their Exactly. <laughs> I think there's a huge difference there on the, to the volumes you're buying at that level right? But 60% do say yes, that the regulatory clarity means a lot. Interestingly enough, um, some of these investigations, as we know, are pretty nascent. And the the things that the SEC are looking at, whether it's at NFTs and Yuga Labs, or whether we're thinking about the way they're approaching Three Arrows Capital, which is a little further down the road in terms of uh, the hiccups we saw a lot earlier this year that were much more blatant and detrimental to the market, that a little bit of regulation might have protected some people against. You, of course, mentioned well, Three Hours Capital was a pretty... You were very experienced in the space if perhaps you were going into that area or indeed if you're buying NFTs. It's a different type of asset class perhaps than Bitcoin, the OG. So how are people feeling about just that as an area to be going into at the moment? One interesting about Bitcoin in particular is I think the difference that they, uh, these investors have felt about the trading range. So when we, they were asked in the summertime, they thought that Bitcoin, by and large, most investors had thought that Bitcoin crashed down to $10,000. Now, generally, investors are feeling that there's a range-bound view here between $17,000 and $25,000 until the end of this year, which is a little bit brighter than the summer, but still range-bound. I think that there's a lack of consensus here about how much correlation there is also to other assets. I think that's very important because we do see some professional uh, actors seeing that correlation break down. Mm. But 42% of respondents think that the correlation to tech stocks will yeah. stay similar. So you see that interest rate worry still exist among investors. So much for a diversifier quite yet. Interesting, I just want to diversify the conversation a little bit because
because I'm a Brit sat here looking at the political uh, extraordinary occurrences happening over in the UK. And I remember, you know, Rishi Sunak, now Prime Minister, was at one point talking about making the UK a crypto hub, making sure that their regulation was ready for this space. What did that news have for many a crypto investor today? Well, obviously, uh, the crypto meme traders are blowing up about <laughs> it. There's a lot of great videos about Rishi Sunak on Twitter right now. But remember, it was only April when he said that he wanted to make the UK a crypto hub. He really wanted to put more framework around stable coins being recognized as a valid form of payment. One quick thing I would say about this, too, is if you look at the actions that have been taken outside of that, take CBDC, central bank digital currencies, for example, the UK is still only one of 46 countries that are still in research phase. Okay. There are 26 countries in development. There are 15 in pilot programs. So if you look at the CBDC world when it comes to how fast the UK is moving, it is less fast than, for example, Australia, but about the same as the United States. But he is a crypto-friendly uh, executive, of course. Crypto-friendly, uh, now Prime Minister, who has a rather long to-do list. So we'll see whether it ends up anywhere near the top. Shanali, it's always great to have you on. Thank you, Shanali Basak, of course, for our crypto report. have a deep dive now on the gig economy, which has seen a pretty rough transition from peak pandemic to a pretty difficult new normal. Shoppers going back to stores, inflation hurting everyone's wallets, and the market value, of course, of DoorDash has fallen by some 70% this year. Uber, 34%. Instacart, after slashing its valuation for a third time on the private markets, keep on pushing towards an IPO amid pretty uncertain market conditions. Let's talk about what's in store for these companies, for their workforce as well, for their regulation. Bradley Tusk, founder, CEO of Tusk Ventures, which takes a novel approach to investing. You really double down on areas that are going through regulatory changes and hurdles and you help with your expertise to decide what's the best bet and not. Bradley, at the moment, the erosion of value in these sorts of companies, and we see a deep dive going into GoPuff, for example, on the terminal today. How difficult is it with the changing of, of their, how their view, workers are assessed? Yeah, look, it, it certainly doesn't help. So right now, you've got two different camps in a binary position, right? So the sharing economy companies all say, should all of our workers become W-2, we expect our operating expenses to increase by as much as 20%. So they've got a view that you know, in a business with already tight margins, they really can't afford 20% more cost. Uh, the unions will say... We believe that every single person in the sharing economy has to be a W-2 employee. The reason they say that is their main concern is, of course, members and pay, union paying dues. You can't get dues from someone if they're not a member. They can't be a member if they're not a full-time employee. So you have each side kind of taking a fairly extreme position. Um, the Biden administration has now sided, not surprisingly, with the unions, um, they issued a proposed rule at the Department of Labor about a week and a half ago that effectively presumes that everybody in the sharing economy um, is a full-time employee and not a 1099. So that will likely go into effect. So if you're thinking about the cost structure for DoorDash, for yeah. Lyft, for Uber, potentially for Instacart, whenever they go public, um, I do think you have to factor that in. However, um, there are some other mitigating pieces, which is first, if the Republicans win the White House in 2024, that rule likely gets rescinded right away. So it's actual from the amount of time that it existed 
so that rescinded will be pretty minimal. The impacts will be pretty minimal. Also, you know, the Biden administration, since they're just picking politics as opposed to the actual well-being or desires of the workers, they're going to find that millions and millions of people who currently work as independent contractors are going to really resist becoming full-time employees and joining unions because they don't want to, right? Yeah. So while they may say, of course, everyone wants to be in the union, of course, everyone wants to be W-2, um, all of the, the data so far shows that people who are in the sharing economy really value the flexibility that they have over setting their schedule, yeah. choosing what kind of work they do, when they work. And so that has to get balanced against it. So I, Bradley, I think, you know. Just to interject there, yeah. I'm right, rightly said, and I've heard the lobbying go on, it's been going thick and fast in the UK as well, for many a company that I covered yeah. over there as well, when you think about Deliveroo and the like. From your perspective, is it a useful use of resource of the companies you back, that they have to just lobby, pay for lobbying in this way? Yeah, look, unless the lobby expenses are greater than what you believe the total increase in costs are going to be for converting everyone to W-2, then yes, it's a good expense, right? So if you're talking about a 20% operating increase, um, your lobby expenses yeah. are, I don't know, less than 1% of that in reality. So it's it's not that uh, it's it's not that material. Let's, let's, yeah, companies have to work on this stuff for sure. Let's go through your list then as a VC at the moment in this landscape. How high up does the regulatory concern come to you, or are you more likely just looking at the broad landscape of tech investing right now and being like, oh boy, the, the, the tectonic plates have shifted a bit here? Right, it's a good question. So we're early stage investors, seed in the Series A, and we look for all the same stuff as every early stage founder, as every early stage investor. So the founder, the, the TAM, the underlying technology, the underlying idea, all the usual stuff. Then at Tusk Ventures, we ask two more questions. One, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved could really drive growth and valuation? And if so, can we help solve it? But when the answer is yes to both, that's when it really makes sense for us specifically to, to deploy capital. So if you take the companies that you just listed, for FanDuel, we ran all the campaigns to help legalize daily fantasy sports betting. For Bird, we legalized electric scooters. For Lemonade, we got them their insurance licenses in every state. For Roman, we helped digitize, legalize digital prescriptions. So uh, for us specifically, we need to see a significant regulatory issue for us to invest in the first place. Typically speaking, those issues come at the front end. Yeah. Um, and so that, that impacts how we look at it. If we do our jobs properly, later stage investors won't even have to think about this all that much because we've already legalized the product, gotten the license, whatever it is that the company needs. Bradley, we could talk to you for so much longer. We thank you for giving your inside track on today. Bradley Tusk, always great to sit down with him, founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures. Meanwhile, well, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. It goes by so fast. Tuesday, we're going to have SoFi's Liz Young to talk all things earnings. And do not forget to check out the podcast where we amalgamate some of the best parts of our conversations in a really unique and easy-to-digest format. From New York, wishing you well. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.